This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, helping you unlock money you didn't know you had. Members-only discounts that can save you tons. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Christine Ross for Libby's Nimer. We ask a labor expert why Doug Ford's government backed down in its fight with CUPE this week. And Calgary-based writer Suzette Meyer has won Canada's richest prize in Canadian literature. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. As we adjust to the end of daylight saving time comes a new study that finds we're not getting enough sleep. About half of the 9,000 American adults in the study experienced social jet lag. That's a conflict between biological clocks and the social and job obligations affected by real clocks. 30% had a weekly deficit of one hour or more. 20% suffered from daytime sleepiness. 30% report trouble sleeping to their doctor. The study was done by the Journal of the American Medical Association. Mindfulness works as well as an anxiety drug, according to the first study that compares the two. After two months, participants reported their anxiety declined by 30% in both groups, those who meditated and those who took medication. And it continued to decrease for the next four months. The study, in this week's Journal of the American Medical Association, is timely because just two months ago, a U.S. task force recommended routine anxiety screening for adults as anxiety rates have increased related to worries over the pandemic, political and racial unrest, climate change and financial uncertainties. Michelle Obama said she struggled with a crushing sense of hopelessness after the 2020 presidential election that was brought on by the death and isolation of the pandemic and more. The former U.S. First Lady says everyone was searching for how to cope, and for some reason they were asking her. So she started to think about it. Her second book, The Light We Carry, Overcoming in Uncertain Times, is set for release next week when she opens a six-city book tour starting in Washington. The 58-year-old offers tips for overcoming fear of change and self-doubt. She opens up about the difficulties of making new friends, parenting, marriage, and menopause. Next time you stub your toe or get cut off in traffic, go ahead and swear. A new study finds potty-mouthed people are happy as... New research finds cursing can make a person feel more persuasive, powerful, and socially connected. A group of UK researchers examined 100 academic papers to determine if there were benefits to dropping F-bombs. They found cursing leads to social bonding and solidarity because it's perceived as a sign of intimacy among friends, while people are more likely to be polite with acquaintances. They also found that swearing during painful experiences can help people feel better. Dancing through our dreams. To be 62 years old and all of a sudden I have 20 sisters is just amazing. That's from a documentary chronicling a troupe of 30 senior women who built a reputation across southern Florida with choreographed dances to pop songs. 
called the Calendar Girls. The dancers are not professionals, but put on 130 shows per year under the direction of 71-year-old athlete Catherine Shortledge. Through performing, some of the women get more comfortable in their skin. Wearing over-the-top outfits and sparkly makeup, they might never have previously worn. The new documentary comes out in select theaters in New York and Los Angeles, among other cities, this month. I'm Christine Ross, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. As a gesture of good faith, our government is willing to rescind the legislation, but only if QP agrees to show a similar gesture of good faith by stopping their strike. It was a defining moment in labour negotiations in Ontario this past week, amid growing support for CUPE education workers and poll numbers suggesting he was to blame. Did Doug Ford blink and back down by rescinding Bill 28? We reached Dr. Simon Black, Associate Professor of Labour Studies at Brock University, about these unprecedented turn of events. We've just witnessed some unprecedented events in labor relations in this province. Why did Doug Ford back down on the threat to use that notwithstanding clause after initially seeming so steadfast in preventing CUPE workers from striking? Yeah, I think there's three reasons that he backed down or, or the government did a U-turn and has committed to repealing Bill 28. Uh, the first reason would be there was an unprecedented kind of show of strength by the labor movement, not only in Ontario, but uh, unions across Canada bandied together and uh, wrote the premier letters, demanded that the, the bill be repealed. But most importantly, perhaps, the Ontario Federation of Labour and its affiliates had planned to, on Monday morning, to announce the intention to hold a rally and the following Monday to hold a general strike. So that would be unionized workers across Ontario uh, downing tools, walking out, and joining uh, QP workers on picket lines. And we haven't seen that in the province of Ontario since the Days of Action, which were one-day rotating general strikes in cities across Ontario uh, in the first couple of years of the Mike Harris uh, Conservative government in 1995. Yes, yeah, so uh, I... I was a young reporter at the time, and I vividly remember during those social cuts of Mike Harris, there were massive demonstrations all over the province, and it ignited something then. Do you think this is having kind of a similar effect? I think it has. There's been a number of things that have happened, uh, which I think are notable and uh, indicate that there's this uh, particular moment for for labor. Um, One is that public support for the union and public support, according to a poll by Abacus Data, uh, for unions going out on strike in support of the QP workers was uh, overwhelmingly positive. Some, somewhere in the, the, the area of about 72% of parents with young children were supporting QP education workers, and these would be parents who are most affected by uh, QP, QP support staff in the schools going on strike. And then something else happened. Construction unions, which had endorsed the Ford Conservatives in the last provincial election, including one of the largest in the province, Leuna, the Laborers International Union, they came out uh, opposed to Bill 28. And uh, the presidents of those unions send very direct and pointed letters to the government demanding that they repeal the bill. So those are two things that put a lot of pressure on the government, public opinion, its allies in the labor movement, and the third being potentially a general strike. Yeah, I want to get to that in a moment. But backing up to that abacus poll, not only did it find support um, for the unions, but it basically found 62% blamed the Ford government. 
for the school closures. It did, yeah. And when it comes to a labor negotiation that's happening in the public sector in which you know taxpayers and citizens and parents and children all have a stake in it, then these negotiations are being played out in public. And what the public's take is really matters. And it can matter at the bargaining table. So this un- unintended effect, though, of uniting Canada's largest unions, which some have been at odds with one another for years, some say Ford's threat to use the clause, the notwithstanding clause, was almost like poking a hibernating bear. Yes, it was. I, it's it's had the the effect of doing something that no progressive politician or labor leader has done in recent memory, and that's unite public and private sector unions, unite the labor movement in all its all its differences and divisions, and to bring that movement together around a common goal. And like I said, that's something that no progressive or left wing politician has been able to do, and definitely no labor leader has been able to do. And so Doug Ford has achieved that. I'm just wondering, in your opinion, do you think in, I shouldn't say post-pandemic, but in this pandemic timing, are people just fed up? Many have lost their jobs and maybe they just got pushed too far and maybe that was why this this huge rise in support for QP? I think that workers in general, not only unionized workers, but with the tight labor markets we've been experiencing with so-called job shortages, that workers uh, are feeling that they can demand more at the workplace. And um, like you said, a pandemic in which workers uh, who are working from home experienced a lot of stress, workers who stayed on the job are are so-called frontline or essential workers, uh, experienced great degrees of hardship as well. Um, And I think there's a kind of general sense, and now with inflation, that, that working people are kind of fed up. And uh, they like to see a group of workers, in this case, QP education workers, standing up to someone that they perceive to be a bully and to stand up for, you know, better wages and working conditions. So what's ahead now? How will the events of the past few weeks between the Ford government and QP impact labor talks in the province going forward? How these negotiations will play out over the next year and into the, you know, uh, sorry, into the new year. Um, It's difficult to predict, but I think this last week and a half has definitely changed the dynamic between public sector workers in particular and the government and perhaps shifted the balance of power. Simon Black, thank you so much for this. Oh, thank you for having me. That was Dr. Simon Black, Associate Professor of Labor Studies at Brock University. I'm Christine Ross, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, 55-year-old writer Suzette Meyer has won the Scotiabank Giller Prize for her book, The Sleeping Car Porter, about a gay black train porter on a particularly difficult trip out west in 1929. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, Canada's largest and most influential association fighting for the interests of Canadians as we age. Find out more at carp.ca. And now, the winner of the 2022 Scotiabank Giller Prize, Suzette Meyer. It has has been so wonderful and such a privilege to get to know the other writers. You're just so brilliant. Calgary-based writer Suzette Meyer has won this year's Scotiabank Giller Prize for her novel, The Sleeping Car Porter. 
This is Meyer's sixth novel that tells the story of a black man in 1929 who works as a sleeping car porter on a train that travels across the country while also living a secret life as a gay man. It brings to life an important part of black history. Meyer is a past president of the Writers Guild of Alberta and has been teaching creative writing at the University of Calgary since 2003. We reached her just hours after her big $100,000 win. Suzette Meyer, congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you. So you have won prizes for your writing before, but in your acceptance speech, which, by the way, was funny, emotional, and very poignant, you really seemed shocked and very moved to win the Giller. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I just didn't expect it. I, I didn't expect it. It's such a huge award. Um, it just has just felt not within my realm of possibility. And so uh, I, I was absolutely gobsmacked when I, when I won it. I, I have won awards before, um, and, you know, those awards are excellent, they're, but they're not big like this one. This one is, this one is ginormous. It's really hard to wrap my head around, really. So the, the jury said, and I quote, as only occurs in the finest historical novels, every page in The Sleeping Car Porter feels alive and immediate and eerily contemporary. These are some affirming words for your writing, and I loved how you said in your expect- your acceptance speech that maybe now you won't feel like you have the imposter syndrome when it comes to writing. I mean, it's hard, yeah. hard for people to believe that you would feel this way, and you're such a gifted writer, but it is something that a lot of people feel, a lot of women feel. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, a lot of women do feel it, and, you know, I think... It's also, I mean, I have been writing, this is my sixth book, but I have been writing for a long time and there have been a lot of ups and downs. And, you know, there have been a lot of times when I've had doubts and with this book in particular, I, you know, I've never written historical fiction before. So who the heck am I to suddenly decide oh, that's what I'm going to do and I'm going to try to do a great job at it. You know, you know, I love writing and I will always write, but uh, part of being a writer is having readers and, you know, I'll just be frank here. I haven't always had a lot of readers. And so um, it has made me wonder if I'm not that if I'm in the right line of work necessarily, but, you know, am I necessarily speaking everyone's language? Right. You know what I mean? Or, right. or am I just talking to myself? Why did you des- decide to write The Sleeping Car Porter? Well, it was actually a really good friend of mine who uh, years ago told me, told me to do it. He was a former creative writing professor, and um, when he was in his teens in the 1950s, he was riding a train, and there was a sleeping car porter on there whom he connected with, and sleeping car porter at one point brought out a trombone and played for him and the other kids, and it was just such a sweet story that I thought, okay, I will, I will try this, but I just didn't know anything about sleeping car porters, and so it was something, it was a book that I thought, okay, you know, I'll just put it on the back burner and if something comes of it, um, something comes of it. If it doesn't, it doesn't, and that's fine. But, you know, as the years went on, and I think I just sort of matured as a writer and matured as a person, um, it started to become more and more important to think about, you know, Canadian history, specifically, you know, the history of racialized people in this country and queer people in this country. And uh, I realized, too, as I went on, that nobody was writing a book about a black queer person in history. Like, I just wasn't seeing it. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to give that person a happy ending. I think many Canadians, like you said, you weren't familiar with the carporters, and I, I think maybe this is something that Canadians will now know about. And, uh, you know, you mentioned, too, that 
that we celebrate Black History Month one month of the entire year in February. Do you hope in some way that this book will change the idea that we only celebrate this country's rich Black history just one time a year? I sure do. I mean, I think Black History Month is great and all, but it's it is very limited. It's sad that it's only one month. Sleeping Car Porter history, Black history is becoming more of the um, dominant discourse in terms of understanding the history of this country. And so, you know, my ideal understanding of the way Black history is, would be incorporated into our culture is that, sure, we can have our, you know, our Black history months, but that, you know, it it be common knowledge who the sleeping car porters are. This year's shortlist marked the first time the finalist books were all written by Black, Indigenous, and people of color Canadian authors. How important is this? You know, I think it just reflects the diversity of this country. Um, it's an interesting question. It's an interesting observation. I think, you know, I look at those books. They're all so different. They reflect all such different experiences. I think Canada is way more diverse than people give us credit for. And and so it's just reflecting what's actually going on in this country. Without offering up your entire syllabus for the creating writing course that you teach at uh, in Calgary, what are some of the fundamentals that you offer your students? I hope what I'm conveying to them is that, you know, writing, and especially writing a book-length manuscript, should be about chasing your joy. Uh, it should be it should be fun. It's not that it's not a lot of work, of course it is, but you need to find a topic that interests you and obsesses you and that you can fixate on for long enough that it'll carry you through years and years and years of you know writing and also pages and pages and pages of failed failed writing um, because that's really Im- that's really, really important. And I, I think too, you know it's important that you, especially early on when you're writing a manuscript, that you don't censor yourself. And I don't mean, you know, go hog wild, but, you know, allow your imagination to go in whatever direction, even if it's not what you intend it to do. You know, I think be free. And I find that a lot of students are, they're so worried about how they're going to be read that they, that they find trouble writing as a result of that. You know, and I, I also don't believe in the whole idea of writer's block. I think that's more like a fear of failure than anything else. Thank you so much for this. Yeah, thank you. That was this year's Scotiabank Giller Prize winner, Suzette Meyer. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.